Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Thank you, Anissa, for uh, such a wonderful introduction. And thank you to Muslims for Peace uh, for organizing this event. Um, as she mentioned, I teach here at Rutgers University, and um, as such, uh, I and my students have been beneficiaries uh, of the work of Muslims for Peace and have been able to take advantage of the opportunities uh, that their events have presented, so I thank them for that. Uh, I'm also honored uh, to receive this award and very honored to um, be on the stage with such um, inspiring uh, and, and wonderful women um, here today. So thank you for that. So uh, I've been here at Rutgers for about 10 years. Uh, I teach courses on Islamic history, uh, Shi Islam, and also women and society in the Middle East. Um, and as you might imagine, Many of the questions that I usually get right up front from my non-Muslim students um, is about uh, those issues that, of course, tend to be sensationalized in the news. Uh, so uh, Sharia law, uh, the issues of polygamy and family law, um, and veiling as well. So, of course, the basic part of my job every semester uh, is to dispel stereotypes about these issues. Uh, and by the end of the semester, if I've done my job properly, um, they, the students have a deeper understanding of the actual roots of these topics in the religious text and in religious practice throughout history. However, there's one particular, pop, very popular belief about Muslim women related to veiling that I have found in my experience to be very difficult to uproot. And that is the belief that Muslim women who veil, who are religiously observant, are only doing so because they are being forced to do so. That given the choice, they would not veil, nor would they live such pious lives. Which, of course, um, is as much a stereotype about Islam as it is about being a religious person in the modern age. Muslim women are seen as oppressed by a backward tradition, and their religiosity is seen as a return to the past. When I'm addressing this issue in my classes, there's an anecdote that I like to tell about an acquaintance of mine, um, a woman who is uh, educated, uh, very well-educated, liberal, feminist New Yorker, who one day, a couple years ago, asked me, we're having a conversation about what I teach, and she said to me, so Sandy, do you think Muslim women are ready? And I said, ready for what? <laughs> and she said, you know, to take off the veil. This is someone who, what's, you know, was of course upsetting to me about this is that this is a person who values diversity, who's open-minded, um, who works and who votes for human rights for all people. Um, so the question is, why would someone like that still assume that Muslim women's religiosity is something that 
can't be integrated into a modern world, can't be part of a modern experience of the world. So I think that this anecdote gets at the point that along with what, whatever stereotypes people may have about Islam, the religion in general, there's also today a bias against religiosity itself, specifically, of course, outward displays of religiosity. And it is in the confluence of these two biases that Muslim women often get placed. Thankfully, in academia over the past few decades, the field of women and gender in Islam has exploded and there's now a large and growing body of scholarship that has uh, documented, analyzed, and worked to change these and other mistaken views. So I'd like today to pay tribute to one scholar who has been one of the most powerful voices in the study of women in Islam. Um, whose loss just one month ago will leave a great void in our field. Uh, Saba Mahmoud was a professor of anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley who specialized in sociocultural anthropology and was a scholar of modern Egypt, particularly pious women in uh, modern Egypt. Uh, and from her, I'd like to read just a little bit from her official uh, obituary from the uh, from Berkeley's uh, webpage. Mahmoud made path-breaking contributions to contemporary debates on secularism, opening up new ways of understanding religion in public life and contesting received assumptions about both religion and the secular against an increasingly shrill scholarship denouncing Muslim societies, she brought a nuanced and educated understanding of Islam into discussions of feminist theory, ethics, and politics. Her publications and presentations have reverberated throughout the humanities and social sciences, profoundly shaping the scholarship of a new generation of scholars as they develop a thoughtful, knowledgeable, and critical approach to religion in modernity. So if there are any students or academics here who have not read any of her work, um, I urge you to do so. Although I'll caution you, um, it's not for the faint-hearted. I do have a PhD, but still, it takes me four or five times through some of her paragraphs to, to get what she's saying. Um, she's an absolutely brilliant scholar. Um, but not all of her work is, is that highly theoretical. Um, much of what she's written um, has been um, very accessible and spoke to um, urgent issues that were happening um, you know, the, in the day. Uh, for instance, one example of um, an article that I do use in a couple of my courses on a regular basis uh, talks about how after the U.S. began its war in Afghanistan, when it seemed that the majority of the American public, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, conservative Christians and Hollywood stars, all were behind this military action that the U.S. was taking as they came together on the issue of saving Afghan women from the clutches of the Taliban regime. This seemed to be the place where all of these parties sort of came together in full approvement of, of the US military action. Dr. Mahmoud and a co-author published a short article that exposed the misguided nature of this widespread support. Without giving you too much detail on the history of US involvement in Afghanistan, the key premise of Dr. Mahmoud's argument was that 
Although no one would question the extreme nature of the Taliban regime and its deplorable treatment of women, the problem was twofold. First, Afghan women were already suffering. Lack of adequate health care, lack of stable food supply, lack of political and social stability before the Taliban ever appeared. They suffered from the effects of war and militarization brought to Afghanistan, not by a Muslim regime, but by the US and Russia fighting the Cold War by proxy on Afghan soil. However, in government statements and uh, the advocacy that took place in Hollywood and, and other places in liberal America, um, the cause for Afghan women's suffering was seen to be exclusively, quote, the Taliban and the terrorists, unquote, a sort of compound lump of Islamic evil that had to be exterminated. So the Taliban were seen to, were seen to be uh, to blame, um, and what this argument did was to completely ignore the historical background of how Afghan women came to be in the situation that they were in. The second part of Mahmoud's argument in this article is that while Americans desire um, for, to, to help Afghan women, and this was an honest desire for many of these observers, they didn't actually ask Afghan women how they could help or what it was that Afghan women actually needed. Uh, for instance, um, uh, Laura Bush, the first lady at the time, gave a radio address, a very famous radio address, marshalling support for the US war in Afghanistan, in which she spoke about how Afghan women were suffering and that one of the examples that she gave is that they were not allowed to wear nail polish. So we have, according to Laura Bush and um, Jay and Mavis Leno, who were also big activists at the time, um, uh, these were some of the things that they wanted to fight, uh, to the rights that they wanted to fight to give back to uh, Afghan women. And of course, for all of these, these American observers, the requirement to wear the burqa to cover themselves was at the top of their list of ills that needed to be addressed. Dr. Mahmoud pointed out that actually Afghan women had more urgent concerns that needed to be addressed. And you can see some of those concerns listed on the right side. Um, and these were according to Afghan women's uh, organizations who were on the ground who actually had experience with you know what women needed. So things like safety from rape, safety from violence in the streets, freedom from the effects of the rampant drug trade, uh, freedom from the effects of constant war and militarization that had been going on for decades, uh, adequate, adequate medical care and adequate food sources. Furthermore, Dr. Mahmoud pointed out that even after the US invaded Afghanistan and so-called freed these women, they did not, and a lot of observers were surprised about this, they did not immediately throw off their veils and parade through the streets in miniskirts, uh, which is sort of a persistent American fantasy of bringing freedom and enlightenment to a dark and backward world. One of the most powerful images that I've used to try to um, communicate to students and also to, to public audiences is um, a, a comic that many of you have probably seen. Um, it's on the next slide. I'll warn you, it's a little risque. <laughs> um, 
but we, we have two here we have here two women um, one obviously uh, Western blonde uh, and the other Muslim woman who is veiled um, and the white woman says uh, everything covered but her eyes what a cruel male-dominated culture as she views the Muslim woman and on the other side the Muslim woman is viewing her saying nothing covered but her eyes what a cruel male-dominated culture okay so you've got you know, very, shown in a very clever way, these two perspectives, um, but that has served to be, particularly for my non-Muslim students and my non-Muslim uh, audiences, very, very powerful um, expression of how the Western view that in order to be free, women must, you know, dress in a certain way in a typically Western style that they must um, show their skin at some point um, that this view may not be a universal view of what women's freedom looks like um, so uh, so I, I tend to show this this comic to, to try to get people to, to understand that so um, Sabah Mahmoud's work was a monumental breakthrough in demonstrating that Muslim women and women of any religion really can be pious and free at the same time. That they can have agency and not just that but also be agents of social and political change by being pious. Her theory about this is uh, much more than I it's much more complicated than I could summarize here. But just the stories that she told in her work about um, pious um, Muslim women's movements in Egypt uh, bear out the conclusion that piety is not the opposite of modernity. That you can be religious and modern at the same time. And on the next slide, I've got a quote um, from Dr. Mahmoud. Can we only free Afghan women to be like us? Or might we have to recognize that they might want different things than we would want for them? Uh, another study that serves as an example of how we see pious women enacting their freedom and, and agency is the work of Lara Deeb, uh, who writes about pious she women in Lebanon. Deeb's work shows how far from being oppressed, she women in Lebanon are strong, powerful, active agents of social and political change, and that they are inspired by, they are inspired in this, not by shunning their religious tradition, but by embracing it. Lebanese women every year at Ashura tell the tale of Zainab, that it was not a male, but a female who was dragged before the corrupt ruler Yazid in chains, who spoke defiantly to him. And a quote from um, some of the women that uh, Deep spoke with. Oppression doesn't have a specific identity. It is general. It exists all over the world. In all confessions, in all religions, Ashura reminds us of this. Layla detailed Zainab's entrance into the prison. Another prisoner inquired of her, how are Ahlal Bayt, the family of the prophet? Zainab responded that they were dead but continued in a strong voice, I, I am of Ahl al-Bayt. I am Zainab, granddaughter of the Prophet Muhammad, sister of Imam Hussein, Anna Zainab. I am Zainab.
This action inspires Xi women all over the world to fight oppression wherever oppression lives, to not stay silent, to speak, to act, to work toward justice and peace. As I take home this honor today, the award for encouraging interfaith dialogue and understanding, I want to say, as a faithful Christian, that it is my strong belief that the massive challenges that women face today, that we all face today, can be and are being met by many of us, not only by drawing strength and inspiration from our own religious traditions, but by coming together with those of other traditions, respecting each other, sharing in our common humanity, and fighting oppression and injustice together.